0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Thanks for tuning in to Nowhere to Run. However it is that you found the show, I'm super glad that you did. If you have any questions about anything that I've said before in the past or want to ask me some question about anything, you can email me directly at nowhere to run. 1984 at gmail.com or you can just go to my website which is nowheretorunradio.com click the contact button also on the sidebar there you're going to be able to see a lot of other things that uh, maybe projects I'm doing or, or other things that I am into also you can sign up for the email list there on the sidebar and you'll also see a big banner on the side for the Politics of Religion Conference which is coming up April 1st and second in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And it's going to be great. Actually, Russ Dizdar just now, um, he's going to be a speaker as well, so that makes the lineup now. Russ, Derek Gilbert, Chris Pinto, Michael Bennett, or otherwise known as Dr. Future, uh, Mike Tater, otherwise known as Tom Bionic, Andrew Hoffman, the author that we've had on this show before, and myself. So it's going to be pretty awesome. If you have any questions about it, you can go to thepoliticsofreligion.com. Obviously, the the theme is going to be politics and religion, but I think it's going to be a lot like the Last Days Conference, too. There's going to be some really great um, just fellowship happening there, and I'm going to be doing two presentations. One of them about Bible prophecy, which I'm not uh, all that thrilled about, just because it's such a volatile subject, but I plan on doing some good research about it and trying to make sure I know what I know and... And don't know what I don't know, and whatever. And then the next one I'm going to be doing is on. Um, uh, 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 I'm going to be doing a workshop type of thing about debunking and try to teach people how to do it. A lot of people ask me, Chris, could you do a video about you know this false person or whatever because my cousin is now all involved in it and and she needs help or whatever. Lots of stuff like that. And and you know a lot of times I just simply don't have the time. But other than that the one thing that you really need to do something like that is a drive you need to have a heart for that particular issue and that person has that and they might not know how easy it is to do the rest to do the you know research and the technical stuff about how to you know throw some pictures in the thing and and hit render on the on the on you know free software to or movie or video editing or whatever But we're going to talk a little bit about the research and and all that stuff. I'm going to try to put it out in a systematic way, um, at least as much of one as possible, and it should be fun. So anyway, I'm super happy about it. I'm excited about it. April 1st, 2nd, 2011, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the website is thepoliticsofreligion.com. You can buy tickets there, and you can see about the hotels in the area or whatever. Okay, so lots going on this show. The first thing I'm going to do is play a... The audio from a video that I made about a week ago called The Khazar Myth Debunked. And I talked a little bit about this in the last show. I, oddly, I, well not oddly, I, I was wrong about just some details about the stuff that I thought I knew about that issue. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised it, it would end up being a better thing than that. But it's sort of a minor issue. I probably don't even need to mention it. But just wanted to say that. That's why it's good to do research before you do uh, video projects, so a little bit of discrepancy between what I said then and what I will say in this video, but I think it's just, it's just an amazing uh, thing, what you're going to hear, and I, I was just really surprised to, to learn about it. So anyway, let's talk about the Khazar myth debunk. I'll, I'll debunked. I'll play this video and get back with you on the other side. Let's look at a theory that many people believe. It's one that I also believe, too, until I looked into it for myself. The theory comes from a book written in 1976 called The Thirteenth Tribe by a man named Arthur Kessler. In the book, he claims that the Ashkenazi Jews, these are the Jews that had gathered in Europe around the Middle Ages, were descended from an area in the east called Khazaria. He claimed that the Khazars were a white race of people and that their royalty converted to Judaism for political reasons around the year 800, even though they were not ethnic Jews and then they forced the population to convert as well. Then they claimed that these people migrated to Europe and became what we now call Ashkenazi Jews. Therefore, they say that the Ashkenazi Jews, which constitute the majority of modern-day Jews, are not Jewish at all and have no claim to the land of Israel today. I have found that this theory is not correct at all, and there's plenty of evidence that proves it isn't. One clue should be that the people today keep pointing back to this book written in the 70s to support this claim instead of pointing to recent papers or historians or archaeologists that prove it. That's because modern historians and archaeologists, even with Arab sympathies, don't buy Kessler's theory. One example is a scholar named Bernard Lewis. He's a man who the Encyclopedia of Historians and Historical Writing calls the, quote, most influential post-war historian of Islam and the Middle East. He's also a person with a long history of defending the religion of Islam. He said this about Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe quote, This theory is supported by no evidence whatsoever. It has long since been abandoned by all the serious scholars in the field, including those in Arab countries, where the Khazar theory is little used except in occasional political polemics. Another man, Douglas Morton Dunlop, who is cited as quote, the most esteemed scholar of the Khazar monarchy, end quote said that the theory that Eastern European Jews were the descendants of the Khazars can, quote, be dealt with very shortly because there is little evidence which bears directly upon it, and it unavoidably retains the character of a mere assumption, end quote. Let me show you some terrific reasons why this theory is wrong. But before I do, it's important to define a few terms, as many of the presentations that try to convince people of this idea seem to be confused on some pretty basic issues. First, there are two main types of Jewish ethnic divisions in the world. They are the Ashkenazi and the Sephardim. The word Ashkenaz means German, and the word Sephard means Spain. These are the two largest groups. During the 1,000 years of the diaspora, or the dispersion of the Jews from the Middle East, many Jewish communities were established by Jewish settlers in various places around the world often at great distances from one another, resulting in long-term isolation from each other. These communities would develop under the influence of their local environments. Two main centers of Jewish populations were in modern-day Germany and Spain. Sephardim are Jewish people that settled in and around Spain, although the name now also includes other Jewish ethnic groups that simply worship in the same style that they do. Although the spread of Jews into Spain is most commonly associated with the Diaspora, which began after the Roman conquest of Judea in 70 AD. Immigration from Judea into the area can be dated before the destruction of Jerusalem. And really, no matter which dates you prefer for the Sephardim settling in Spain, this group settled in Europe long before the Khazar Empire ever existed. Germany was also an area that, over time, many Jewish people settled in. It became one of the few places in the world that Jewish culture thrived. They established universities and businesses. The term Ashkenazi, although meaning German, later came to refer to a wider region of Eastern European Jews. So what do we know about the Khazars? It's likely that the Khazar nation was made up of tribes from various ethnic backgrounds, as steppe nations traditionally absorbed those that they conquered. Their name is accordingly derived from the Turkic kāz, meaning to wander or flee, but we don't know much about them for sure. It is known that there was, as the book The Thirteenth Tribe suggests, a conversion of the royal family to Judaism around the year 800. This fact is attested to in various historical sources, although for many years the only people to claim this was the Jews themselves. In the Jewish Encyclopedia, it states, the conversion of the leading Khazars to Judaism perhaps took place toward 740 CE. Ironically, for many years, it was only the Jews who claimed that this was true. And it wasn't until recently that modern archaeology has proven what the Jewish historians have been saying the whole time. I've heard many people mention this encyclopedia issue as if it somehow confirms that Ashkenaz was founded by the Khazars. But it doesn't at all. It simply states that there was a conversion of the Khazar royal family to Judaism. The amount of people in the country that converted to Judaism with the royals is debated somewhat. Some say it was just the royals and most of the upper nobility. Others say it was the entire country that converted. This seems unlikely because of all the historical accounts of that area being a melting pot of Muslims and Christians, as well as Jews, after this fact. It really doesn't matter, actually. The question in regard to this theory is, did these people migrate to Europe in masse to become what is known as the Ashkenazi Jews, as Kessler says that they did? There are many ways, actually, to test this theory, so let's take a look at some of them. The first thing that we need to get out of the way is this issue of race versus parentage. Many of the websites and videos that I've watched which attempt to convince people of this theory say simply that the Jews are supposed to be brown, and the Khazars were white, and Ashkenazi Jews are also white, and therefore the case is closed. Now, there's a ton of problems with this idea. And setting aside the idea that these people claim that the Khazars were white, which nobody knows for sure, but Asian characteristics do seem to be the most likely hypothesis. But nevertheless, let me demonstrate how common parentage and race are different. One writer said it this way. Let me illustrate this point. If I were to marry an Asian woman and father children who then married other Asians, these children would be my descendants. If that woman were to die... And I were to marry an African woman and have children, and they were to marry others of African descent, they would also be my descendants. One set of my descendants would be racially Asian, and the other racially African. But they would both be my descendants. Today's Jewish people claim to be, by and large, the community of physical descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs. Whatever their race, race is not the issue. The issue is descent. The fact is, is that you can't tell who is and who isn't a Jew based on skin color. But thanks to modern technology, we now do have a way to test this. And it will be the first way we will look at to debunk the idea of the 13th tribe. Over the last 10 years, there's been astonishing discoveries in the area of genetic testing that not only destroy any hope of this 13th tribe theory, but also offer dramatic proof to the biblical account of history as well. Genetic testing of both the Ashkenazi and the Sephardim, and even Samaritan Jews, which are the ones that have never left the land of Israel, reveal a common ancestor. And what's even more amazing is that that ancestor traces back to the same area in the Middle East, and to the same time in history. There are some finer details about this testing, which we're going to look at in a minute, but I think the most amazing part of this genetic research is in regard to something called the Kohanim. The Kohanim, or people with the last name Kohen, is basically a person that claims to be descended from the biblical person Aaron, who was Moses' brother. They were the priests, and people today that have the last name Kohen are essentially claiming that they are descended from this man 3,000 years ago. And what makes them such good test subjects for this genetic research is that while Jews in general mostly married within their tribes over the years, the Kohenim were ultra particular about this, and even today there are strict rules about marriage for people of the Cohen line. Another important factor in this is in regard to the nature of the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is one of two chromosomes that determine the sex of a child, and it is passed from father to son. So, if I had a son, he would inherit a Y chromosome from me and an X chromosome from his mother. And if I had a daughter, she would inherit an X chromosome from me and an X chromosome from her mother. Since Y chromosomes are passed from father to son, all coeneme men should theoretically have almost identical Y chromosomes. This can be tested with the genealogical DNA test. And in addition, as the rate that mutations accumulate on the Y chromosome is relatively constant... Scientists can also estimate the elapsed time since two men had a common ancestor. So, they can know the time period when this original man existed. And, amazingly, because of the so-called halotype, they can also tell more or less what region in the world this man lived in. Isn't science cool? The Cohen hypothesis was first tested in 1997. In their study, which was published in the journal Nature, they found that genetic similarities appeared to be shared by both Sephardic and Ashkenazi Cohens pointing to a common Cohen population origin before the Jewish diaspora under the Roman Empire. Many more studies were done with a greater number of test subjects and in many diverse areas in the years that followed that confirmed these initial findings. One recent study, published in 2009, demonstrates that 46.1% of Cohenim carry Y chromosomes belonging to a single parental lineage that likely originated in the Near East well before the dispersal of Jewish groups in the diaspora, Support for a Near Eastern origin of this lineage comes from its high frequency in the sampled Bedouins, Yemen's 67%, and Jordanian's 55%, and its precipitous drop in frequency as one moves away from Saudi Arabia and the Near East. Moreover, there is a striking contrast between the relatively high frequency of this gene in Jewish populations and its vanishingly low frequency in the sample of non-Jewish populations that hosted Jewish diaspora communities outside of the Near East. So a Jew may look like its host population, but it is genetically very distinct. I think it's really provocative that they also found this connection with the Kohens that have lived in Israel continuously this whole time, called the Samaritans. They are a very small group of people that broke away from traditional Judaism around the 5th century BC, and they have their own version of Judaism, but interestingly, they claim that their priests descend from the Kohen line as well. And in a 2004 article on genetic ancestry of the Samaritans, it concluded from a sample comparing Samaritans to several Jewish populations, all currently living in Israel, representing Ethiopian Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, Iraqi Jews, Libyan Jews, Moroccan Jews, and Yemenite Jews, as well as Druze and non-Druze Palestinian Arabs, that the principal component analysis suggested a common ancestry of the Samaritans and Jewish patrilineages. Most of the former may be traced back to a common ancestor in what is today identified as the paternally inherited Israelite high priesthood, or the Kohanim, with a common ancestor projected to the time of the Assyrian conquest of the kingdom of Israel. If you think about it, this is such a major blow, not only to the 13th tribe theory, but also to people that claim that Jews don't at least have a claim to the land of Israel, as well as people that claim that the Bible is not historically accurate. There's not a whole lot of people trying to disprove the core findings of this research. Now, there was a paper out about 10 years ago after the first tests were done by a guy named Zeusman, who questioned that some of the evidence was being overstated. But those concerns were addressed in the subsequent studies, and even serious critics of Jews are coming to terms with this data. For instance, a man named David Duke, who was a former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who in his book My Awakening says that he believes in the Khazar theory, now seems to agree that, quote, genes don't lie. Unfortunately, he seems to be using this new information for negative ends, too. Here's a clip from YouTube. The point is, is that the Ashkenazi population by and large has the same Jewish genes as the Jewish populations all over the world. And this is the death nail to the theory that the Ashkenazi Jews descended from the Khazars. The entire premise of this theory has been totally shattered. That doesn't mean, however, that the Khazars played absolutely no role in the Ashkenazi community development. As with most lies, they often contain an element of truth. The genetic tests in the Ashkenazi population did show that there was a possible connection to Khazaria or some other genetic influence in a certain percentage of those tested, some say about 12%. This suggests that there was at least some amount of migration of refugees to Europe by Khazarians after the Khazar Empire was taken over, which was to be expected, as it was where most Jews, converts or not, gathered as it was a major center of Jewish civilization at the time. But these refugees would have been very small, as historians note that the Khazar sovereignty was broken up by Sviatoslav I of Kiev. The Khazars became a subject people of the Kievian Rus's, gradually displaced by the Rus', the Kipchaks, and later the conquering Mongol Golden Horde. The Khazars largely disappeared as a culturally distinct people. But, as we have demonstrated, it doesn't matter anyway. There's no possible way, based on the genetic evidence, that Ashkenazi Jews originated from the Khazars. The Ashkenazi Jews are linked to Jews all over the world by their genes, even though they have different races. Another way to show that this theory is wrong is with language and culture, which, as social sciences, can be very helpful. Yiddish was the language spoken by early Ashkenazi Jews. And it's by tracing the migration of Yiddish that we can also trace the migration of the Ashkenazi Jews after they left the region. Yiddish is a Germanic language with a heavy influence of Hebrew. It also has traces of Latin-derived languages in it. Basically, it's a mix between Hebrew and European languages, and primarily German. And it uses the Hebrew alphabet. It's very similar to that of the Sephardim in Spain and Portugal, who spoke something called Ladino, which is basically a combination of Hebrew and the Latin languages of that region. And it, too, uses the Hebrew alphabet. The problem is, is that if the Ashkenazi Jews were descended from the Turks of Khazaria, the Khazars left no evidence of this in the language, which would be completely unheard of in historical linguistics, and it's very hard to believe. Yiddish bears no resemblance to the language of the Turks, and there's no shared vocabulary. This is a pretty big point if you're a linguist. But add to this the absence of any apparent cultural influence... And it's a dramatic leap of faith that the Ashkenazi Jews were descended from a country that has no evidence of it in their language or culture. One might even go so far as to say that such an idea is an impossibility. Another point is made by a commentator saying, Those who continue to push forth the theory that Ashkenazi Jews are not real Jews also display a gross ignorance of the Jewish religion concerning the treatment and acceptance of converts. This is either ignored or unknown by those who make the accusation. Although we've already seen the DNA evidence that vindicates modern Jews, even if by some chance they were not ancestrally related, the fact remains, in Judaism, a convert is treated with the utmost respect and, according to Jewish law, no differentiation is made between a biological, if you will, Jew, and a Jewish convert. Even some famous biblical characters, one example being Ruth, an ancestor of King David, were converts to the faith and not born into it as a descendant of Abraham. I, Chris, would even submit that the genealogy in the book of Matthew shows us that Jesus, or Yeshua, was legally descended from this line of Ruth, through David, all the way to his stepfather Joseph. But his blood connection to this line comes through his mother, which we find in the genealogy of Luke, which instead of going through the Solomon line, it goes through David's other son, Nathan, which masterfully avoids a curse that was put on the line of Jeconiah. Today's Jewish people are by and large the community of physical descendants of a guy named Abraham, whatever their race. Race is not the issue. The issue is descent. Black Ethiopian Jews, blonde Jews from Scandinavia, Jews from India, they're all racially different, but all Jewish. Sure, there's been intermarriage, rape, conversion of Gentiles. Some non-Jews have entered into ethnic Jewry, but at the core, the Jewish community remains descended from patriarchal Israel. Thanks for your time. All right, and I also got another audio from a video that I'm going to play, and this one is about the crazy Calvinism, Armenianism thing that's been going on on YouTube. If you don't know about it, don't worry about it. But it's basically just my commentary on it. I debated about whether or not to do this for a while. Interestingly, I actually had put up a show, um, I don't know, it's been a few days, Uh, uh, maybe last week sometime, and I just got finished with it and it was real controversial and I hit like every possible controversial topic and it took me like five hours to put it all together because I kept trying it and retrying it. Finally got it like I liked it, like I liked it and uh, uploaded it and, and actually got it uploaded in one one site and then um I felt like the Lord said, take it down. And I was like, ah, "I uh, you know, sometimes I hear stuff in my head, you know, obviously that's just my voice. I mean, sometimes it's just my voice and it's like, nope it's not, take it down, it's like, ah, man, and actually, I I was having about the worst few weeks that anybody could have in the world, it just seemed like I was just getting it from all sides negativity, every time somebody emailed me, it was about negative stuff, and I was just getting hit down, and smacked down, and every possible thing, and then that, and I just felt like, what am I going to do, and uh, actually, I cried out to the Lord, like, really, like, you gotta give me some kind of sign. I just gotta, you know, I need some kind of something to go on to just keep on trucking here. And I was, you know, in that kind of state. My wife came home. She saw I was kind of down. She prayed for me. I just went out in a drive. I went and checked the, uh, post office box, and somebody had sent me, uh, the largest donation I've ever got. And it had a card that said this, um, I don't think while we're on this earth we'll ever know just how intricately he watches over us and loves us. I was like, all right, that, that counts, I guess. But anyway, I found in retrospect why I shouldn't have put that, uh, that podcast on there about, uh, my point in Calvinism at that point, And is right after that, uh, was just a lot of different stuff happened and it forced me to look into to it again and put a, a really clear version of what I thought out thought about it out, and so here is the the product of that. Hey everybody, what's up? I thought I would do a real quick video just to address the Calvinism and Arminianism thing that's going on here on YouTube. Causing a lot of division, but that's nothing new. This debate has had the ability to divide for quite a while. It's divided churches and friendships. Uh, it actually almost started a civil war in Holland at one point one of the reasons this debate exists is because both sides have Bible verses that by themselves will absolutely prove their individual points. And that's one of the reasons that this debate has been so heated, that both have elements that are absolutely true biblically. And I'm not going to talk so much about the details of each position, although I'll mention it some. Mainly, I'm going to appeal to both sides and hopefully get them to see that you can be an Arminianist or a Calvinist or something in between and not only still be saved but preach the identical gospel message and certainly not be worthy of writing each other off altogether. What's interesting about this debate is that questions like did I save myself or did God save me are questions that are usually asked in the past tense. What I mean is that, philosophically speaking, each side readily admits that the other is born again. The problem comes when people begin to reflect on the details about how that event happened. It can get pretty philosophical. Was it ultimately my choice, or was it God's choice? Hmm. You can see that this reflection and decision to try to figure out how exactly it happened has nothing to do with the fact that it happened. They both would agree that they repented and believed in the gospel and then were saved. The question is, but did my desire to repent come from me or from God? The process of evangelism for these two groups does not change. An Arminianist and a Calvinist would go out together and do evangelism, let's say, and they would preach and tell people to turn from their sins and to turn towards Christ, and some of those people would and some of those people wouldn't. Now, they can go home and debate why some did and why some didn't, but they will both get up and do the same thing the next day. Now, I've heard some say that while it doesn't affect evangelism in that way, the danger is that Calvinists, who philosophize that the reason that some are saved is because they are predestined to be, would not see any reason to do evangelism or missionary work. But instead, the Calvinists say that just because they believe that God has predestined some doesn't mean that they know who those people are. And so their job remains the same, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And ironically, evangelism is what I find that Calvinists do quite well. In fact, that's why I like some Calvinist preachers so much. They're the ones that seem to be really making a powerful impact on the internet right now. And I'm something of a connoisseur of internet evangelism. And I'm sure that there's some Calvinists that don't do any evangelism for this reason. But I'm also sure that there are some Arminianists that don't do any evangelism for equally lame reasons. I'm going to address one more issue that's been going around in this particular debate, and then I'll tell you where I stand on the issue. So a lot of people have been saying that Calvinism makes God a sinner. He's the author of rape and all these different things. They'll throw out a lot of these really, really harsh things. And the idea is actually one of philosophy. It's sort of a conclusion to a philosophical idea that's used a lot by atheists, or at least it was up until really recently, in debates among philosophers. Um, The idea is that if evil exists and God is in control, then God must in some way be allowing the evil to exist. In that debate, it might go something like this. Evil exists and therefore God doesn't. And they might argue about the usefulness or uselessness of that evil or the difference between allowing evil or authoring that evil. And because Calvinism generally takes a stand that God is ultra-sovereign or ultra in control, then the idea is that, according to their view, he is more to blame for not stopping or allowing the evil. And again, this is a matter of philosophy, so don't let anyone tell you that Calvinists believe that God robs banks and whatever. That's just appealing to your emotion, whether or not it's right or wrong. The other problem with this is in order to know for sure, you'd have to know all of God's thoughts on the matter and take into consideration all the things that he takes into consideration. And it says in the Bible, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Now, as far as what I believe personally, I tend to think that each side is true in what they affirm, but not necessarily in what they deny. I think that there is a mountain of scripture to defend the Calvinist position on certain points, as demonstrated by Keith's three-hour film, which was sadly immediately taken down by one of the antagonists here. Even if you don't agree with that film, if it does nothing else, it should show you that Keith's position is well thought out, and it's rational, and it has a ton of scripture to back it up. But wait, the other side also has its mountain of scripture too. Therefore, my position is summed up in these short clips from David Guzik.
1: Scripturally speaking, is it proper to say that repentance is something that God does in us, or is it something that we do for God? Do you understand the distinction here? Is repentance something that God does in us, or is it something that we do for God? And the answer is yes. Yes. The answer is both. There is no doubt that repentance begins with God and that it's a gift. Acts chapter five, verse 31 in Romans chapter two, verse four. It tells us that God leads us to repentance at the same time because of all the appeals to repent. In other words, when John the Baptist said, repent, when Jesus said, repent, when Paul said, repent, when Peter said, repent, the mere fact that they said it and appealed to the will of specific individuals to repent proves that there's something for us to do in repentance. God is not going to make a person repent against their will. He may move upon them so that they want to repent, but they will still have to exercise that wanting to repent and say, I repent. So it is a work of God in us, but it is a work that must be responded to. When I'm preaching on a passage that speaks about God's election and God's foreknowledge, the people probably walk out of the door going, man, that dude's a Calvinist. Now, when I'm preaching on a section that talks about man's responsibility and man's need to choose, I bet people walk out of the door going, man, that guy's an Arminius. And that's exactly how I want it. The problem comes, for the Bible teacher or the Bible student, when you take a passage that speaks of man's choice and try to pretend that he doesn't really have a choice. Or when you take a, action that, uh, a section that speaks of God's election and try to talk as if God doesn't really have an election. Just let the Bible speak for itself.
0: The bottom line is that this is a matter of philosophy and nobody is going to get to heaven and the Lord will say to them, Congratulations, you had really good doctrine. Or, Congratulations, you figured out how I did it. Satan has used this particular debate on so many occasions to divide things that bother him. The best thing that we can do is to drop this and begin to produce good fruit. Listen, guys. I talk to people every day that have been yanked out of death and dying and and, and evil of all kinds. And I know you have too. And this darkness is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The Bible says that we're going to be killed for this. The underground and persecuted churches today and through history have not been divided. You know, if you're saved, you're in. It's something about dying together is a great equalizer. And I got news for you that there's a really good possibility that we are going to die together, or at least to die for the same reason. So we're standing here in front of a common, vicious, snarling enemy. We're totally outnumbered. It's a suicide mission, basically. So let's shake hands, agree to disagree on this, and go back to radically loving the people that we're trying to help. Thanks for your time. And right there at the end on the screen, I quote Galatians six ten, which says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And I, I think that's a really great line because you sometimes don't think about that, that we are, that it, there's actually an especially in there. Do good to those especially of the household of faith. Sometimes I forget to think about that, that line. Um, but anyway, if you want to watch any of those videos, you can do so at the YouTube site, of course, which is nowhere to run 1984 with a K. And you can also see, you can see that on the, on the main page, which is nowhere to run embedded in this episode, which will be January 13th, 2011. So let's talk about church real quick. I like the Tim and Mike show on the Revelations Radio Network, if you ever get a chance to check it out. Two guys probably a lot like uh, you, and uh, they're fun to listen to. They were talking, um, uh, and they've they mentioned this before, it's a term I think they've coined called, uh, uh, is it discernment overdrive? And I know a lot of us have discernment overdrive, that is that we... We're coming from the conspiracy world and we have just got, uh, everything figured out. We've, we, and most of it's true. Hey, you know what? We, we do have a lot of stuff figured out. We know this, that, and the other thing about this. And, and it can co- get obviously a little bit too mm, hyper, a hyper version of that where, you know, you've got to make sure you're reading the right Bible version and doing the right thing here and believe exactly the right thing about prophecy and, and whatever. All that stuff. Can take a lot of different forms, but one of the things it does is it prevents you from actually getting involved in a fellowship, you know, around your local town. And I gotta tell you, I was like that too. For years, I, I didn't go to church, and I'm not just, and my, everybody's situation is different. I, I've talked to people that have just been saved that, like, you know, the Lord led them right into church. And it was real clear that, that uh, there were, you know, things going on. The Lord wanted them in church, and the church has just really been great for them. And for others, it's been taking a little bit longer and all the different ways that people, uh, um, you know, that God works with different people. But for me, it took me a little while, and I didn't think I was the church type. You know, I was like, well, you know, I got all this stuff figured out and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, recently, over the last maybe year and a half, I don't know, what it, whatever it's been, I just love it. I love church. I love going there. I love being there, and I love uh getting to know these these people locally. It's kind of like a family, you know. You got older people there, and younger and middle aged people, and you know the kids, and you're like, ah, this person has that problem. This one's a little quirky, and blah blah blah. But hey, you know, you're all family and whatever. And I love that. That's a really good thing, and that's that's something that we really 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 need, especially in the situation that we're all in. I mean, stuff's gonna get real weird. In, in the world and you know you want to be at a church that like you guys will still be meeting together in like a totally bombed out building you know with no ceiling all huddled together and and you know sticking together and that kind of thing i mean they're the people that like all right let's pull together our you know money and, and we'll make sure we all have food and i mean just that's that's where that that's what the church is going to be here for us and that's why it's very important well that's not not the why i'm There's lots of different whys. None, the least is the Bible says don't don't forsake your gathering together. It's something that it's a part of our growing process. We have to do it now. Granted, we all get fellowship online, and there's lots of different opportunities for that, but it doesn't take the place fully, I don't think, of the fellowship that you get with the church. Now, this is a pretty profound thing that a church uh, that we went to for a long time said. Uh, he said, and we loved it. I mean, they preached uh, verse by verse, and their doctrine doctrine is really good, and everything. And they really seem to just love the Lord and stuff like that. Long story, they they said one time, look, we are going to disappoint you, so just get ready for that. I mean, you're gonna think if you're here because you think you, we believe everything that you believe or whatever, just get ready, because something is gonna happen where we don't dis- we disagree on it, and that's okay. I mean, that's. That's, <laughs> that's quite alright. Uh, you know, me, I, I love Calvary Chapel churches, and, uh, the one I'm going to now is the Calvary Chapel church, but I don't agree with them on the pre-trib rapture. I believe in a pre-wrath rapture, which is just marginally different, but it, it, it's just not a big deal. I mean, it's, I, I when we go through those passages, I'm like, oh, alright, come on, hurry it up. But it's not, it's not a thing that, if you, if you found a church that agreed with you on your, um, position on the rapture, you will probably disagree with them on the, actually, on other much more important matters. I mean, you just can't, you just can't find, if you're, if you've got to find somebody that's perfectly agrees with you, then you're just not going to work. The, the, you'll never find a perfect church because you're there. And therefore, it can't be perfect. Um, but like I said, I do like Calvary chapels. I think that they, I, I recommend them to people because they, I feel like they're a good starting point. You know, they, they preach verse by verse. They're not a denomination as such. Um, you know, people always say, Chris, they're, you know, Pentecostal and everything. Uh, I don't, I mean, I know that they, they believe that the gifts of the Spirit are real and, uh, and everything, but I've never been to one where they don't, they don't actually, you know, they obviously listen to Paul's admonishing the Corinthians and say, hey, look, God's not the author of confusion. If you're going to do that, do it at home or have somebody interpret it or whatever. Uh, but, but it is, it is a necessary component to, uh, a, a believer's life, not tongues necessarily. I mean, what did Paul say? I mean, if you're going to desire anything, desire the gift of prophecy. But nevertheless, I don't want to get too bogged down. I mean, I, most of the Calvary chapels I've been to never even mention it, but I think it's good to mention it because it's biblical. But nevertheless, I just don't want to scare anybody if they like, okay, let me look up a Calvary chapel. Oh, my gosh, it's Pentecostal. Oh, my gosh. But Pentecostal is not bad. Pentecostal is good. Uh It's just... It's it's just if you look at a hyper crazy version of Pentecostal, I don't know what's going on in there, but it doesn't seem to be God. Uh you can't take that and say that's what Pentecostal is. I mean, Pentecostal is just believing, "Hey, this stuff is real, the Bible's real. Um Jesus said we're going to do all this stuff and raise the dead and stuff." I mean, either he was, you know, true or he wasn't. So, I think they're taking a as they do in most things a very biblical position. But I want to tell you that if you go out looking for churches, it's going to be kind of a rough ride. Um, we actually, when we spent about six months looking for churches, ironically, the first church we went to was the one that we're going to right now. But we kept looking for various reasons. At the time, we lived, you know, or, or we lived in different houses, but we lived too far from it. Um but we tried all over Nashville and all over the surrounding cities looking for churches. We looked at non-denominational churches. And the thing about non-denominational churches is that since they don't really have any guidepost or, or somebody somewhere saying, hey, we believe this thing or that thing, they can be very varied. So we would go into one and it would just be crazy. and The other one would be like not so crazy but just not very much heart. And, you know, we just never really found something like that that we really liked. And we did end up finding one that we did really like and everything. The only problem with it was that over time we, we felt it was just too big. I mean, there were no really opportunities to get to know people. I mean, they they did church really good and the teaching was just fabulous, but it just uh, was too big and there wasn't uh, a lot of stuff going on. But anyway, I just want to encourage people out there that that, that is a good thing. And, and here's the big deal. I know a lot of us obviously listen to stuff on uh, on uh mp3s so you don't have to take that big a gamble anymore i mean you can look around your area and if you find you pull up some churches there and you you want to try some out you can just listen to the pastor listen to them preach for the last few weeks i mean i know all calvary's do put their stuff online so you can listen to them i'm sure a lot of churches do that now too i i know that from you know our search true but but Obviously, most of the time you're going to be able to go to their website and look at their statement of beliefs. You'll know what they believe usually by what they don't say. It's like we believe the Bible is good, you know, as opposed to we believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and blah blah blah. You know, mostly those kind of beat around the bush when. (laughs) And you can be like, yeah, I think this is going to be crazy. I could usually tell if we were going to go to one that, uh, you know, when we were trying one out if it's going to be nutty by their statement of faith. It's like this one seems pretty darn vague. We'll get we'll get there, and they're all just like. You know, never opened the Bible, and anyway. So okay, getting off track here. So anyway, that's what I'd say about that. Um, what time we're we looking at here? We got a few more minutes, I guess. I'll, I'll defend uh, Chuck Missler. I meant to do this in the last uh, podcast, or I did do it in the last podcast, but it's now the lost podcast. Um, anyway, so Missler. Every time I mention him, it seems like somebody sends me one of the. Uh, links from this website called watch.pair and says look at chuck missler's a false prophet and i saw something that uh, scott johnson had put something out about chuck and nancy missler being false people and he basically just copy and pasted what's at watch.pair when you see this kind of stuff you always got to go back and check and see what the what the website itself believes and watch.pair the Barbara aho site there i mean you can look at if she, she, she believes, like, the Khazar theory. Like, she's, she believes the Khazar theory. She thinks that there's these, you know, the fake Jews and the Zionists or everybody's, you know, we got to do something about the darn this and that and the fake Jews and whatever. So, naturally, Chuck Missler was a false prophet before he ever opened his mouth because, you know, Chuck Missler is very pro-Israel, right or wrong. That's why Barbara Aho knows for a fact that Chuck Missler is a false prophet. And, literally, she's got an article up. That, that's, that Chuck Missler took a, uh, a tour to the, to the Isle of Malta. I'm kidding you not. That's what the whole article, it's like the biggest article you've ever seen, and it, and it boils down to Chuck Missler once took a, took a tour to the Isle of Malta, which of course is biblical, you know, Paul, Isle of Malta, and all this stuff, but, but she goes on the huge treaties about how pagan the island is, and, you know, therefore Chuck Missler is, is a false, uh, prophet. But, but the main thing is the Council of National Policy. Well, oh, back back to – and, you know, Chuck Missler doesn't believe 9-11 is an inside job. So, you know, uh, and I w- add to that I would say, okay, neither does your grandfather or probably your father. And despite how many times you tried to show them, you know, some movie or whatever, they don't believe it. And the reason is is because they have a harder way to fall. I mean they're coming from a generation that has to fall a long way. The Cold War era is hard to break free of in, in terms of, no, no, America couldn't be bad and blah, 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 blah. I mean, and, and this Barbara Aho website, she has another one on Ron Paul, how Ron Paul's a Rosicrucian. Literally, I, I'm kidding you not. Based on the fact that Ron Paul uh, said that he liked the book Atlas, shrugged. Even though in that quote, he's saying, you know, I don't, I don't agree with a lot of what you said, or whatever, but I like the book a lot, and blah blah blah. And of course, the the hand signs of Ron Paul, which, which they, uh, you know. This massive article. But but one of the quotes about Ron Paul, I like that sort of demonstrated Aho's attitude. She says, Ron Paul demonstrates his Zionist colors when he denies that 9-11 was an inside job. Now, there is your research uh, who has proved that Chuck Missler is a a, a, a false preacher because, you know, these kinds of things. Now, the Council on uh, National Policy issue. I know exactly why uh, uh, Chick Missler joined the Council of National Policy. The same reason that Stan Monteith joined it was because they approached him and said, hey, we are a group of Christian think tanks. we uh, Christian think tank. We think you are super special, super awesome and whatnot and we want you to join us to help, uh, you know, we could use your input to shape what's going on in this particular thing. On their website, they say that they stand for small government, they stand for Christian values, getting Christian values back in government and a strong national defense. That's their three points. Now, I know that most of the Fox News generation, which I'm obviously Chuck Missler is sort of like your grandpa or your dad, sort of in the Fox News version of reality, as wrong as it is, as much as I'm trying to shake my dad out of that reality, I'm sure a lot of you feel my pain on that. That's where he's at. Um, but here's the issue. So, of course, both of those would like, yeah, let's do it, man. I, I'll, I'll throw in my two cents. Obviously, they both found out that it that it wasn't something that was trying to do as much good as possible. I think uh, Dr. Future um talked with stan found out stan uh quit quit doesn't no longer a member of it and everything i emailed k house uh chuck missler's website they uh and they said uh chuck isn't a member anymore that he doesn't uh go to the meetings doesn't pay the dues not a member it's been years and years so um i mean scott johnson and this whole thing about you know uh taking tours of the isle of malta and all this stuff i mean come on guys again uh, people say this about his teaching and I don't know any. I, I I tell you what. I don't agree with Chuck Missler on certain issues, including uh, the idea that you know the Muslim thing. Again, the Fox News mentality. I think it's just sort of um, uh, you know trusting too much the media and stuff like that. Um, so Chuck Missler, in regards to his view about politics or whatever, that's that's not what I'm telling you. That Chuck Missler's good at anyway. I'm telling you, he's a really solid Bible teacher. He will make you love the Bible. Get his verse-by-verse commentary and you'll see exactly what I mean. This guy is passionate about Jesus Christ and passionate about the Word of God and he's brilliant. His commentaries were uh, a huge part of my uh, discipleship and no, there isn't false teaching there. I might not agree with him about prophecy on 100% of the issues, but he certainly taught me a good hermeneutic. He taught me how to study the Bible so that I could make my own decisions about that. Now, a false teacher will never do that. I mean, take it from me. I know something or other about false teachers. And a false teacher, a complexion of a false teacher is never like that. A false teacher will tell you that nine eleven is an inside job. A false teacher will will have a correct version of, of you know, all the stuff that uh, they don't. But when it comes to the gospel or when it comes to getting you to turn to the bible and love the bible when it comes to terms comes to teaching you a good hermeneutic on the bible a false teacher will never do that stuff i mean a false teacher will do everything it can give you It will, it will throw it all on the table and if it can get everything on the table except for uh, a, a sacrificial death of jesus christ it will do that Um, But that's the one thing it won't ever do. It won't explain and get you saved and and teach you about the gospel. Um, It will be leading you away from that. Just think of any false teacher, and uh, I'll show you how they do that. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say to sum it up. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions or comments, send them to somebody else. Uh, Go ahead and, and make up an email address. Send them to them. No, I'm kidding. I would prefer, of course, that if you have issues about any of these particular things and you want to fight with me about whether it's the Jews or Chuck Missler or uh, uh, the Calvinism thing. Those are obviously three heated issues, so just don't inundate me all at once, and uh, and uh, I'll be all right. But if you want to, if you have questions about that or any other thing in the whole world, you can email me at Run 1984 at gmail.com. And go to the website. Check out the Politics of Religion comp. Friends, in uh, April 1st and 2nd and uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, thepoliticsofreligion.com. Sign up for the email list on the website when you're checking out the videos, and I'll talk to you all later. Bye-bye.